Police went to go speak to him, but his fiance said that he had an alibi for the night, and she says that they were at church the night that the girls went missing. A few weeks later, Robert was arrested in Texas for armed robbery. After this, the fiance tells police that she lied, that they weren't at church the night that the girls went missing, and that she actually has no idea where he was. Hey everyone, welcome back to What Happened with Jackie Flores. I'm Jackie and I'm super, super excited that you guys are here listening to episode 14 of my new podcast. Now, today we're going to be talking about a case that just makes you confused. It makes you wonder how people can just vanish into thin air and how there can just be no clues or evidence as to what happened to them. Today we're going to be talking about what happened to Stacey McCall, Susie Streeter, and her mother Cheryl, also known as the Springfield Three. Now, this is a disappearance that has affected the community of Springfield, Missouri for the past 30 years and all everyone wants to know is what happened to the three women where did they go and who did this to them even after 30 years it's such an important case to talk about because you never know who might come across this video and remember something even if it was so many years ago this might just spark somebody's memories so with that let's jump right in and let's talk about what happened to Susie, stacy and cheryl So today we're going to be talking about three different women. All of their names start with a Ness, so hopefully this doesn't get too confusing as I try to describe each of them. But let's start off with talking about Cheryl. Cheryl Levitt was born on November 1st, 1944, and she grew up in Bellevue, Washington. Now Cheryl was described as fierce. You know, she never did things halfway. Her sister, Deborah, says that she would go to the ocean all the time and that they would just do a lot of things like a family. She says that their dad loved to be out in Washington and that their family did a lot of camping because Bellevue was packed with outdoor adventures and you know Deborah told Dateline that her family just really enjoyed being outdoor and just living the outdoor life to the fullest. Deborah and Cheryl were eight years apart and Deborah says that she was kind of like the annoying little sister and she would just kind of torment Cheryl but despite that Deborah said that Cheryl was always there for her and that she would take care of her by cooking her dinner and you know just looking out for her. Cheryl got married to her first husband Brent Streeter in 1964 and then that same year the couple had their first child a son named Bart. Then in 1973, Cheryl gave birth to their daughter Suzanne, who also went by Susie. Now around that time, Cheryl's sister Deborah gave birth to her own daughter named Sarah. So the sisters were pregnant at the same time and this just made them even closer to each other. Now almost immediately after Susie was born, Cheryl and her husband Brent decided that it was time for a divorce. So Susie never actually got to know her real father because he became estranged from the family after the divorce. So years later, Cheryl married her second husband, Don Levitt. Now, just like Cheryl, Dawn had children from a previous marriage. So they were all kind of like a Brady Bunch family and they just kind of brought everyone together to unite and, you know, be their own family. And everyone honestly thought that they had a perfect marriage. Eventually, Cheryl, her husband, and their kids moved to Springfield, Missouri because her husband got a job there. Now, Cheryl was a cosmetologist and she had actually built up a very loyal clientele in Springfield and she was making really good money there. So she had settled into her new life in Missouri and she was loving it. Everything really seemed to be going well, but six years later, Dawn would end up abandoning Cheryl and her kids one day, leaving debt collectors to call her constantly about his debts, which is just really sad and shocking. Because again, everyone thought that they had a perfect marriage, so the fact that Dawn just abandoned the family was really heartbreaking. So now, Cheryl was the only one bringing in income to the family, and she had to work really hard to keep up with the mortgage payment. She took in a border, and she started working even more. But unfortunately, despite all of her efforts she did, she did end up losing the house that she and Susie were living in. So after losing the house, it kind of took her a minute to get back on her feet, but in the end, it was all okay. She ended up buying a cute little dream house
house in a nice neighborhood in Springfield for her and Susie to live in. And they had just moved in two months before this whole case began, so they hadn't been living in this house for a long time. Now, her oldest son, Bart, was older, and he had already moved out on his own, so now Susie and Cheryl were living in this house on their own, and this was kind of like a fresh start for them. So a little bit about Cheryl, she didn't really like to go out much, and she never really went on any dates. She kind of preferred to be home or, you know, just hanging out with Susie. Susie and Cheryl were really close. Like, they had a really good mother-daughter relationship, and they just had a lot in common, so they had a very special bond. They were very trendy. They would always have, like, the coolest clothes, the coolest haircuts, everything. Now, the last time that Deborah saw her sister Cheryl was just a few weeks before the incident. Deborah and the whole family had gone to Springfield to visit Cheryl and Susie and just spend time with them. They wanted to stay for Susie's graduation because it was coming soon. However, they had to go back home for work reasons. But they all had a very good time celebrating together, and it was just a wonderful last memory that they have with Cheryl and Susie. So like I mentioned, Suzanne, who went by Susie, was born on March 9th, 1973. And everyone says that Susie was outgoing, she was fun, and she was just a creature of habit. Her cousin Sarah said that she always admired Susie and that she was always really fashionable and just like a cool girl. She was independent and she was tough. And on top of all of that, she was absolutely beautiful. She worked at the local theater while she was in high school, but she ultimately wanted to follow in her mom's footsteps and also become a hairdresser. Now, the third person involved in this case is Susie's childhood best friend, Stacy McCall. I know, everyone has an S in their name, so just keep up with me. Stacy McCall was born on April 23rd, 1974. Now, she was described as funny and bubbly, and she was nicknamed Spacey Stacy by her mom, Janice. So, Stacy and Susie were close all of elementary school, but they did grow a little apart in high school, but they were still friends. You know, things happen. You go to high school, you start meeting new people, you join different clubs, play different sports. So sometimes your childhood best friend just kind of like fizzles out. So even though they weren't best friends, they still kept in contact with each other and they would still hang out. Now, Susie was more in the popular crowd. You know, she was dating kind of like a bad boy and Stacy was a little bit the opposite. She was kind of calmer and she was more of the funnier, goofy crowd since she was really funny. Stacy worked at her local gym while she was in high school and she also did some modeling for wedding dresses. She wanted to go to college and she was planning on attending Southwest Missouri State University in the fall. All three women were very beautiful and they were all blonde. So let's fast forward to June 6, 1992. It was the afternoon of Susie and Stacy's high school graduation. Susie was 19 and Stacy was 18. They both walked across the stage and got their diplomas with all of their classmates. 47-year-old Cheryl was in the audience watching and so was Janice, Stacy's mother. When the graduation ceremony ended, Susie had takeout pizza with her mom Cheryl at their home at around 6 p.m. Now as for Stacy, she went to dinner with her family to a steakhouse. After Stacy and her family returned home, from dinner they all took photos together of Stacy in her graduation outfit and you know they were all just so proud of her like this was supposed to be the start of the next chapter of her life and everyone was just so excited for her so after spending time with their family you know taking photos and bonding it was now time to party Susie and Stacy headed out for the night and they kind of just hopped around to different graduation parties with their friends from high school Stacy was known for always keeping her mom up to date as to what was going on so she called her mom and she told her that everyone was planning to drive 
drive out to Branson that night to go to a water park, which was about an hour away. They were going to go to Branson, get a hotel room, and then in the morning, everyone was going to go to the water park and just have fun celebrating the graduation. However, Janice didn't really want Stacy to go that night because she was worried that something might happen to her. You know, maybe Stacy would get in a car accident and so many teenagers were going to be on the road at the same time and, you know, going to the same place. And I'm sure her mom was worried about, you know, someone drinking and driving. So she wasn't really a fan of this plan. At around 8.30 p.m., Susie and Stacy arrived at a friend's party on Coach Drive, Missouri. Two hours later, at around 10.30 p.m., both Stacy and Susie called their moms and said, don't worry, we're not going to go to Branson tonight after all. And of course, Stacy's mom was relieved because she didn't want her daughter to drive so late anyways. So the new plan was that everyone was going to go sleep over at their friend Janelle's house and then head to the water park in the morning. Stacy told her mom that she'll call her in the morning before she leaves for the water park. And her mom agreed with the plan. They both said goodbye. And then they said, I love you. And unfortunately, that would be the last time that Stacy's mom would ever hear her voice. Now, meanwhile, Cheryl was kind of doing her own thing that night. Her daughter Susie was out having fun with her friends, you know, celebrating her graduation, and it was just a good day. At around 11.15 p.m., she called a friend, and they just had a brief conversation about some chest drawers that Cheryl wanted to varnish. They briefly spoke about this, and then the phone call ended. So before we continue with what happened, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors at ZocDoc. When was the last time that you actually consulted with a doctor about a medical issue and instead of just panic texting your group chat to get opinions. We've all been there, but let's not do that anymore. Trust me, your friends are great, but you're extremely unlikely to find quality medical advice from them. But you can find it from a doctor on ZocDoc. There are literally, and I mean literally, thousands of medical professionals on ZocDoc that are there to help you and give you the expert care that you need. When someone is just exceptionally really good at what they do, whether it's a waiter, a chef, or a doctor, you know you're in good hands. And when you find the right doctor, you can just feel the relief because you feel heard and you feel at ease. There's nothing worse than going to the doctors and expecting to be the main character and then your doctor kind of just acts like they have better things to do. It's really frustrating. However, on ZocDoc, finding the doctor that's right for you is honestly seamless and quality care awaits you with just a few taps in the ZocDoc app. ZocDoc is the only free app that lets you find and book doctors who are patient reviewed, take your insurance, are available when you need them, and treat almost every condition under the sun. When you're not feeling your best and you're just trying to hold it together, you shouldn't have to be a detective to try to find great care. So that's where ZocDoc comes in. Using their free app that millions of users rely on, you can find the right doctor that meets your needs and fits your schedule. Book an appointment within a few taps in their app and start feeling better faster with ZocDoc. Go to ZocDoc.com Jackie and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. Many are available within 24 hours. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com Jackie. ZocDoc.com Jackie. Now going back to Susie and Stacy. On June 7th, they got to Janelle's house at around 1.30 in the morning for a second party. And again, they were planning on sleeping the night there. However, the party was cut short after a noise complaint by a neighbor. So then everyone decided to just leave and kind of disperse and go their own ways. Now, again, the girls were going to sleep there, but the sleepover was kind of crowded. Janelle's relatives from out of town were already sleeping in her bedroom. So it just seemed like the girls were not going to find a good place to sleep or get comfortable in. So Susie tells Stacy that she actually has a brand new king size water bed. And she tells her, why don't we just come back to my house and sleep there? 
Stacy agrees, and the two of them leave the sleepover party at around 2 o'clock in the morning. They drove their own individual cars to Susie's place, and then they got there about 15 minutes later. And Susie's house was located at 1717 East Del Mar Street. The girls get to the house, they walk inside, and then they start getting ready for bed. Later that morning, it was time to head over to the water park. Janelle called the house at 7.30 a.m. to check in on them, you know, just to check in on what time the girls were going to be leaving, but no one answered. Now Susie's best friend, Nigel, also called the house, but she got no answer. So Nigel left a voicemail and then waited for Susie to call her back, but she never did. At around 8 o'clock in the morning, Janelle and her boyfriend Mike decided to head over to Cheryl and Susie's house, you know, just to see what was going on because they literally had plans to go to the water park and it just wasn't normal for Susie to not answer the house phone. When they got there, they were relieved to see that all three of the girls' cars were parked outside of the house. To them, that meant that the girls were home. You know, if something had happened or if they had gone somewhere, where how would they have left if the cars were there so mike and janelle get there and then they walk up to the house and that's when they immediately noticed that there was glass on the porch it was actually from a broken front porch lights globe so the light bulb itself wasn't broken but the outer part was kind of like the protective part they see this and janelle's boyfriend mike decided to just kind of help out the streeters and you know janelle wasn't wearing shoes so he didn't want her to get cut so he decided to sweep up the glass and throw it in the neighbor's trash i'm not sure how he swept it up i wasn't able to find details of that if he had like a broom or if he just kind of used like a paper or something i'm not sure so after sweeping up the glass they decide to knock on the door but there's no answer so a few minutes later they try the doorknob and to their surprise the door just opens it wasn't locked they stood in the doorway for a few seconds and called out their names into the house but no one answered all of the lights in the house were off but the living room tv was on however it was only playing static which is so eerie imagine just like walking into that i feel like that's so creepy so they're looking at all of this when all of a sudden Susie's small dog cinnamon runs into the room barking and just freaking out it was just all a very weird scene now everything in the house was pretty tidy cheryl's bed was made you know nothing was out of place there was definitely no signs of any type of struggle or you know any type of commotion that had happened there however they do see something strange all three of the girls' purses were lined up next to each other on the stairs that led to Susie's bedroom. And her bedroom was at the back of the house. So this is definitely unusual. I mean, why would Cheryl's purse be there? I could understand Susie and Stacy's being there since they were going to sleep in the room, but not Cheryl's. Also, the fact that they were all lined up neatly next to each other was just odd. It seemed like this was done on purpose, not done naturally. So inside the purses, nothing seemed to be missing. In fact, Cheryl actually had $900 in cash inside of her purse. So Janelle and Mike look at all of this and they just kind of assume that the three women are going to come back. I mean, their cars are in the driveway, their purses are there, their money, everything. There's just no way that they left without their things and didn't plan on coming back to get them. So because of that, Janelle and her boyfriend Mike decide to leave. They end up going to a different water park, one that was a little bit closer to home and a little bit smaller, and they kind of just continue on with their day. Now let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors today at HelloFresh. Guys, are you sick and tired of trying to figure out what's for dinner every single night it literally takes me so long to zero in on one thing and then i find out that i don't even have the right ingredients for it well with summer coming up i just don't have time for that kind of decision fatigue to ruin the fun vibes that's why while i plan the summer of my dreams hellofresh takes care of the menu hellofresh delivers mouth-watering chef-crafted recipes and fresh ingredients to your door so you can spend your summer doing well whatever you want 
And when you need dinner ready ASAP, which is pretty much all the time, they've got quick and easy recipes on their menu, including fast and fresh options ready in just 15 minutes or less. So why spend your weekend meal planning when you can be on the beach spending time with friends and family? HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients make it easy to get cooking quick. I have a HelloFresh subscription myself and I just love this chicken that I made. It was absolutely amazing and so healthy and just so quick and easy. I just really love how HelloFresh saves me a lot of time and that I'm able to make quick, delicious, and filling meals in between recordings. So what are you waiting for? Go to HelloFresh.com slash WhatHappened16 and use code WhatHappened16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash WhatHappened16 and use code WhatHappened16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. And enjoy America's number one meal kit. Now, while the friends weren't thinking that something bad had happened, Happened, that wasn't the case for Stacy's mom, Janice. She was worried. All morning had gone by without any communication from her daughter, which was not normal. So she decided to call Janelle's house because that's the last thing that she knew about her daughter is that she was sleeping there. She called the house and Janelle's sister answered and told her that Stacy wasn't there and that she ended up going over to Susie's house to spend the night. So then Janice tried calling Susie's house and left several messages, but after getting no answer, she called Janelle's house again. Once again, Janelle's sister answered and said that Janelle was at the other water park and that the girls were not with her. So then Janice decided to just drive down to the water park herself and kind of flag down Janelle and ask her, you know, if she knew anything about Stacy and Susie's whereabouts. I mean, Janice was active in this. She was an active mother, you know, trying to figure out what happened to her daughter. So she speaks to Janelle and Mike and they pretty much tell her the same thing that I've already mentioned. That when they got there, they saw that the purses, the cars, everything were still there and they just figured that the three women would come back later. But still, even after hearing that, Janice just felt like something was wrong. So at about 11 a.m., Janice, Janelle, and Mike all returned to Susie and Cheryl's house to keep looking. Janice looked inside and she found it weird that Cheryl's cigarettes were still inside her purse. You know, Cheryl did not go anywhere without her cigarettes because she was a regular smoker. So the fact that her cigarettes were there just kind of left untouched was a little bit odd. They started looking around the kitchen area and that's when they noticed that there was an undisturbed graduation cake in the refrigerator. They looked in Susie bedroom and that's when they saw that Susie and Stacy's clothes that they were wearing the night before were all folded up. Stacy's flower shorts even had the jewelry she was wearing in the pockets. There was also washcloths with makeup on them in the bathroom laundry bin. I mean all of this implied that the girls had come home and they had started getting ready for bed and Susie's bed actually did look like it had been slept in because it was unmade. But she was a teenager so it's possible that she hadn't made her bed that day so we don't really know if that means much. Now while Janice is looking around the house, the phone suddenly rings. Janelle answers, but it's a man yelling inappropriate things, so she hangs up. He immediately calls again, but they decide to just let it go to voicemail. Now, the type of voicemail that Cheryl has plays the messages out loud as they're being recorded. So the caller leaves a voicemail and they can hear that it's a man's voice, the same man that just called a few seconds earlier. And once again, he's making a bunch of lewd and sexual comments before hanging up the phone. Everyone is just standing there listening to this and they actually just assume that it was some type of graduation prank call or, you know, something like that and not something serious. And I also just want to say that pranks like that are, of course, not funny and not okay ever. 
but a lot was tolerated back in the 90s, unfortunately, so maybe they just honestly thought this was just a prank and not something more sinister. Now, after the recording, the voicemail was somehow deleted. I'm not sure if it was by accident or if they just didn't want the girls to hear the message, so they just clicked on something, but it was deleted, which is unfortunate because the voicemail could have meant something. Maybe it wasn't just a prank call. Maybe it was evidence. Now, Stacy's mom didn't immediately call 911 because she thought that this wasn't an emergency. She was telling herself, they're going to be back any minute. She didn't want to think that something bad was actually happening to her daughter. Also, something to note is that 911 was pretty new at this time. Like, not a lot of people called 911 immediately after something like this happening. So maybe that's why Janice felt like she didn't want to call the police because she didn't want to bother them. She didn't want to make them upset if, you know, later on, Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl turned up and everything was okay. So, you know, calling 911 just wasn't the first thing that she thought to do. So since this group of people are at the house, they didn't really have anything to do while they waited, so they decided to just start cleaning the house. They washed the dishes, they fixed a bent window blind, and they did anything else to pass the time until Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy arrived. Nigel, the friend that I mentioned earlier, later arrived to check in on what was happening, and she noticed that Susie's car wasn't parked where she normally parks. Susie apparently would always park her car in the carport, not in the driveway. And remember, Susie's a creature of habit, so this is something that was immediately off-putting to Nigel. So normally, if someone's car was parked in the spot, usually her mom's, then she would either park behind her in the carport, and this time her car was not there though. This time her car was parked in kind of like the circular driveway part, so Nigel thought this was a little bit weird because again, you know, Susie is a creature of habit, so she just thought it was a little odd that she would park in the driveway, not behind the carport. It also made Nigel wonder, you know, was someone else's car parked there when Susie got home, and that's why she had to park in the driveway, not behind the carport? So after hearing nothing and there still being no sign of any of the girls by nighttime, they all finally decided that it was time to call 911. So the police arrive and they're already very concerned because three adult women going missing together, it's uncommon. So the police tell Janice that in their report, they're writing missing persons, foul play suspected. So police determined that Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl disappeared sometime between 2.15 in the morning and 7.30 a.m., which is kind of like a big gap, but there's just really no way to know what actually happened between that. You know, where did they go? What time did they leave? I mean, the reason that we have that time frame is because Janelle started calling the house at 7 30 in the morning and received no answer so we can assume that something happened before that time the police started treating the house like a crime scene but all the work the friends and the family did cleaning the house totally contaminated everything at this point janice was sitting on the steps of the house unsure about her daughter's whereabouts as the police searched the home and the surrounding area but something that they realized is that all of stacy's clothes were in the bedroom like the outfit that she was wearing the night of her graduation parties and the outfit that she was going to wear at the water park. Janice also said that there was no way that Stacy could have fit into any of Susie's shorts or pants, so police think that this must mean that she left the home wearing only a t-shirt and her underwear. After the police finished this walkthrough, they asked Janice a question that she didn't expect. The detective asked her if she could obtain her daughter's dental records. Now, dental records can play a key role in identifying human remains. Of course, when Janice heard this, her heart dropped to the floor 
floor. I'm sure she was maybe thinking that something bad had happened to her daughter, but she didn't think that something really bad had happened to her. So the fact that the officer was asking her for her daughter's dental records definitely scared her. So the police weren't able to find any hair, blood, or just any type of DNA at the crime scene. When police searched Susie's room, they discovered some stuff on her bookshelf about devil worship, and that kind of just was weird. You know, that kind of just surprised them to see that this young girl had these type of books. They continued looking and they collected fingerprints, but around 18 friends and family members had come to the house since they were missing, and they basically disrupted the crime scene and basically got investigators nowhere in the end. Now, something to note is that in the 90s, people weren't really thinking about that, you know, especially in this tiny, close-knit community of Springfield. True crime wasn't like a thing, so they weren't thinking, oh, we're contaminating everything. Like, we're ruining and destroying this case. They weren't really thinking that. They were just kind of having good intentions of trying to figure out what happened to their friends and to Susie's mother. Now, since it's clear that Susie and Stacy did make it into the house, because again, there's their clothes, their purses, the makeup wipes, everything, that means that the light that was in the front porch was for sure broken after they got there. Now, I don't know if the police were able to get any of the broken glass out of the neighbor's trash can or if they were able to get that evidence but either way you know it did not help with their investigation at all a lot of people judge mike for doing this but janice later defended janelle and her boyfriend for cleaning up the glass because she said that they knew cheryl wouldn't like the glass being there so that's why they wanted to clean it up before everyone got there so while i get while she's defending them and you know making it seem like they didn't have any malicious intent behind cleaning it up it's still frustrating like looking back on it and reflecting because they cleaned up potential evidence so on top of you know the broken glass being thrown away, the dishes being washed, and everything just pretty much being cleaned up, police were not able to recover the deleted voicemail. So it just seems like from the start, police just had nothing. Anything that was potential evidence or could have helped with the investigation was gone. The neighbors apparently didn't see or hear anything happen that night. There was no screaming, no sightings of anything out of the ordinary just nothing. However, police did find that the street behind their house wasn't a residential street. It was busier and it had businesses on the back of it. So the house's backyard was parallel to a business's public parking lot. So maybe if something did happen back there, that's why the neighbors didn't hear anything. Now, when Deborah heard that her sister and her niece were missing, she just couldn't believe it. She actually didn't find out about their disappearance until the next day and she tried not to panic. You know, she tried to tell herself, it's okay, she's fine, you know, it's Cheryl. There's no way something bad happened to Cheryl and Susie. She left her car and her purse there, so of course she's coming back. You know, she was just trying to be positive about this, but it wasn't until their father said that he was gonna fly out to Springfield, Missouri to look into this that she started to get worried. You know, once she saw her dad freaking out about her sister's disappearance, that's when she knew that something must be wrong because normally her father was a very calm person, but now he was upset. Now, as for Stacy's parents, her mother Janice and her father Stu were just heartbroken. They just couldn't believe that this had happened and they decided to make a pact with each other so that they would not show any emotion publicly. Janice said, quote, even though we are crying all the time, we didn't want people to portray us that way. We didn't want that. We only thought of Stacy. People in Springfield passed out flyers and they hung up posters around the community to aid the search just days after the disappearance. 
At the time, Springfield was just a very tight-knit community. So the abduction of these three women just left everybody shaking. I mean, Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl were living normal lives, so no one understands why this happened. But the fact that these three women just went missing and they kind of just like vanished into thin air scared a lot of people. Everyone started double locking their doors. The neighbors would check in on each other. Everyone was just kind of on edge and kind of on the lookout because this is just not something that commonly happened there. So the community really got together to try to help find Cheryl, Susie, and Stacy. There were search parties going on. There were posters being plastered everywhere. There were even billboards with the women's faces on it. And nine days after the women's disappearance, the FBI was actually called on the case, which normally doesn't happen. Normally they're called in a little bit later, but the local police knew that they needed help now. Now at this point, there are over 20,000 missing person posters hung throughout Springfield. But since there were no signs of forced entry, investigators thought it seemed likely that their kidnapper was someone that they knew. You know, the fact that there was no forced entry, there was no commotion, there was no broken furniture, nothing. It just seemed like someone maybe knocked on the door and this was someone that one of the three girls or maybe all of them knew and decided to willingly let in. On June 11th, Susie's 27-year-old brother Bart was interviewed. Now, Bart wasn't on speaking terms with Cheryl because he had a drinking problem and kind of like a violent temper. He had moved out at the age of 17, which is when his drinking problem began. Susie had actually moved in with her brother Bart, but then she quickly moved out because he had actually hit her when she turned down the loud music that he was playing. So after this, Susie moved back in with her mother Cheryl, and the both of them kind of just cut off contact with Bart. So police went to go speak to him, but Bart claims that the distance between him and his mother and sister was caused by something else. He said, quote, we had some complications over one of Suzanne's boyfriends. Now, the night of the disappearances, Bart was drinking with his neighbor, but he left their house between 11.30 p.m. and midnight and supposedly went home, but he doesn't really have anyone that can confirm that. Now, he did pass a polygraph test about the night, and investigators thought that if he was really a drunk, he would have probably left the house in a mess. So they all say that he was very cooperative. Any questions that they asked, he would answer. So Bart and Susie's estranged father, who I mentioned earlier, Brett Streeter, also told the media to look into Bart, but as we know, he hadn't even seen Bart in 19 years, so it's not clear why he said that. So as they started digging deeper into Susie, police found out that Susie had previously had a boyfriend named Dustin Reckla, who had been arrested before for being part of a grave robbing gang. Apparently, they had broken into a mausoleum and removed the gold teeth from some skulls. So Susie was actually so disgusted by this that she broke up with him. But it turns out that because of that, him and his friends always thought that Susie was the one who had turned them in. Susie was actually supposed to testify against them because they had used her car that night, and the trial was only a few months away before the girl's disappeared. So this group became suspects. You know, it is a little bit odd. You know, Susie was going to testify against them, potentially, you know, get them charged and put behind bars and the fact that she went missing. It just seems a little bit odd. So police went to go interview them, but they all denied having any involvement in Susie, Stacy, and Cheryl's disappearance. Although one of the friends did say that when Dustin learned the news, he said that he hoped, quote, those bitches are dead. Yeah. What a great guy. So on June 12th, all of them passed their polygraph tests and the chief of police cleared them from having any involvement in the disappearance. Now, this was something that not all investigators on the case agreed with, but the chief didn't really find any real motive for murder and he didn't consider them sophisticated criminals capable of pulling this off. Also, they had all taken polygraph tests, which they all passed. But as we know, polygraph tests really aren't reliable, so I don't really know if those mean much. 
So after this, police looked into Susie's other ex-boyfriend named Mike Kovacs, who she had dated two years before she went missing. Now, the reason for their breakup was because Michael had been physically abusive towards Susie. He was quoted as saying, sure, we hit each other before, back when we were first going out when I was just 15, which I'm just like, okay, that's not really an excuse. Just because you were 15 doesn't mean that you guys could have been, you know, physically abusive to each other. But anyways, Susie had broken up with Mike and then one month later, she had gotten a restraining order against him because he had beaten her up, slashed her tires, threatened her on the phone, harassed her at home, school, and at her job. Susie had also filed a complaint against Mike for threatening her and for slashing her tires. Susie was just so afraid of Mike that she would also have someone walk her to her car at night. You know, that's how much she feared this guy. Other people told investigators that she was still afraid of him even after two years. Now, when police spoke to Mike, he basically had no alibi for the night because he said that he was just home alone. So there really is no one that can confirm this. He was also given a polygraph test on June 12th and he passed. So the media picked up on the story and it kind of just went everywhere since it was so mysterious. Within the first few days of the investigation, police got over 500 tips with most of them leading nowhere. Police used search and rescue dogs, cadaver dogs, they searched the nearby lake, and they used helicopters with infrared cameras, and there was still no sign of them. But then, investigators got a call on June 24th from someone saying that they saw Susie, or someone that looked like Susie, driving a van the morning that she went missing. This witness said that the van was an old panel van that was an avocado green color, and that she had seen this van and possibly Susie just two miles away from the house. The person who called in this tip also said that she heard someone in the back seat of the van saying something along the lines of you better keep driving if you know what's good for you. She also said that she noticed a mark on Susie's face, which really made this tip legit because Susie did have a three and a half inch scar on the top right of her forearm. And she also had a small scar in the left corner of her mouth, which you can't see in any photos because she always covers it with makeup. And since the investigators knew that she wasn't wearing makeup when she disappeared because of the makeup wipes found, they believe that this tip was real because the mark on her mouth was not public information. So after this, police started pulling over vans that fit the description and they even put the similar van in front of the police station hoping that it would jog more people's memories and lead to more tips however weeks went by and there was no new information about this van then investigators got a lead from florida about a man named robert craig cox who was an ex-army ranger and originally from springfield now he had been accused of killing a woman named sharon zellers in florida who was getting off work late that night when she was murdered and her body was found that same night she was actually an employee of walt disney world and robert was in that area with his parents yeah he was on vacation with his parents staying at a hotel apparently he returned home covered in blood because a piece of his tongue had been bitten off. He had said that he got into a fight at a roller rink and that he bit his own tongue and that that's how he got the injury. But no one at the rink witnessed a fight that night and then Robert had no blood in his car despite bleeding all over the stairs and the hallway of the motel. There was also blood found in Sharon's car that wasn't hers and this was type O, which was the same type as Robert. They didn't have the same DNA technology back then so they couldn't test it beyond that, but hair matching Robert's chest hair was also found in the car. Car. So doctors also said that the bite on his tongue wasn't consistent with the self-inflicted bite, meaning that someone else had to have done it. However, he wasn't convicted for the murder of Sharon for 11 years. But in between Sharon's murder and those 11 years, Robert kidnapped two other women in California where he was stationed at the time, one at knife point and another at gunpoint. So he was already serving a nine-year sentence for those kidnappings when he was finally convicted of Sharon's murder, which is crazy that it took 11 years to get there. 
Now, when Robert was on death row for that murder, he ended up getting the conviction overturned by the Supreme Court for not having enough evidence to actually convict him, and he was released. After this, he moved back to Springfield, Missouri, which is crazy. I'm like, how was he just released for this? Like, the fact that he could murder someone and then kidnap two people and then just be let go is wild. So when Robert moved back to Springfield, Missouri, he actually worked at the dealership that Stacy's dad worked at. He had just moved to Springfield just a few weeks before the girls all went missing. So of course this was all odd. I mean, the fact that this guy has a history of doing things like this and he was working at the same place where Stacy's dad was working, kind of making him have some type of connection to the girls, it was just weird. So police went to go speak to him, but his fiance said that he had an alibi for the night. And she says that they were at church the night that the girls went missing, which I'm just like, at two o'clock in the morning, you were at church? Okay. So then a few weeks later, Robert was arrested in Texas for armed robbery. After this, the fiance tells police that she lied, that they weren't at church the night that the girls went missing and that she actually has no idea where he was, which I'm just so confused about because if they were at church, couldn't they just have asked anyone else there that night if they saw them? Also, what church is even open at two o'clock in the morning? So how is that even a real alibi? So a news reporter learns about the recampment and he goes and he actually interviews Robert in person. Robert tells him that he knows that the three women are dead. I know that they're dead. I'll say that. I know that. That's not a theory. Yeah, but I know that they're just, I just know that they're dead. That's not my theory, I just know that. He also said that he can't give any specifics until his mother dies, and she's currently still alive. But again, the police have nothing to go off of, so even though Robert isn't ruled out, they basically have nothing to tie him to the crime. A reporter named Kathy, who had been writing about the case, got an anonymous tip that all three women were buried under a hospital parking structure, which at the time of their disappearance was just a dirt lot. So she took this information to the police, but they didn't really seem too invested or too interested in kind of investigating this tip. So Kathy decided to look into it herself and she hired a man who had this tool that uses radar to see what's under concrete and this tool picked something up. The man said that he was getting two images over there and then one over here and this is when Kathy tells him for the first time that she's looking for three women. I guess she didn't tell him that before because she didn't want him to have any bias when reading the machine. You know she wanted to see what his honest and unbiased opinion was before letting him know what they were actually looking for. So she sees all of this and she tells the police but they still don't believe that the three of them could be there. Police said the hospital was built a year after the three went missing and that they believe that during the pre-building excavation, you know, they would have uncovered any bodies that were there, but they didn't. During an interview with the media, Kathy wasn't giving full answers and she finally admitted that she had been threatened multiple times to leave the case alone, which is a little bit odd. Like who was threatening her to leave the case alone? So going back to more suspects in the case, a man named Stephen Eugene Garrison was also a suspect and in the summer of 1993, he told police that he knew what happened to Stacy, Susie, and Cheryl, and that he could give them the information if police helped him get out of jail. He was currently being held in jail on an unrelated weapons charge, and Stephen said that he heard someone confess to killing them at a party, and that this person then took their bodies to a pig farm in Webster County. And for those that don't know, this is implying that they were fed to the pigs. Pigs are able to eat and digest bones. So police said that Stephen was about to give them details about the case at the public 
public didn't know. So the police had the judge lower his bail and they put him up in a hotel room, which then he fled. A few days later, he broke into a college girl's dorm in Springfield where he raped, sodomized, and tortured her for several hours before stealing her rent money and leaving. He was arrested nine days later and the woman testified against him in court, so now he's serving 40 years for those crimes, plus burglary and robbery. Stephen provided no further information into the Springfield 3 case and he's still a person of interest in the case today. So besides him, police also listened to over 50 psychic readings into what happened, but none of them led anywhere. The public actually wanted a pet psychic to meet with Cinnamon, but I don't know if that ever ended up happening. And again, Cinnamon was the family's dog, so they wanted to see if maybe Cinnamon could remember something because they were literally a witness to what happened. So after an episode of America's Most Wanted featured the case, someone called in, but the call was dropped and the man didn't call back. Investigators publicly asked for this man to please call back and they were so hard to try and find him. They said they believed his tip was legitimate because he knew details about the case that weren't public. And investigators said, quote, there was a motive mentioned and with the information provided, it's conceivable the crime occurred that way. However, despite their efforts, this man never called back. Overall, there have been around 10,000 tips since their disappearance, but the Springfield three have still not been found. After five years of their disappearance, Susie and Cheryl were declared dead in court. You know, the family decided that it was time. You know, it was time to declare them dead. And even though they're legally declared dead, it still hurts the family. Deborah says that the pain still feels fresh. And even after so many years, it just still hurts. And she honestly feels like it's going to be that way until she dies. Stacy's mother, Janice, said, quote, I expected her home that night, the next day, maybe a couple of days afterwards. Never in my wildest imagination did I ever think that it would be 25 years later and I would be saying, Stacy is still missing. So Janice vows to never give up believing her daughter could still come home. She says that until she 100% know that Stacy is deceased, she will never declare her dead. They're going to have to find remains somewhere before she will ever declare her legally dead. She says, imagine if I do declare her dead and then Stacy comes back, she's gonna be so mad at me. So since this case isn't solved, here are some things that I think are worth mentioning that are kind of unanswered questions. Now, did the girls ever take their shoes when they left? I couldn't find that information anywhere. Like, I don't know if they left barefoot. I don't know if they quickly put on some sandals, nothing. Also, the glass in the front porch is a little bit odd. An officer who was part of the original case says that he believed that the lights globe was broken on the exit of the abduction not before. Now, the reason he believes this is if the girls left with no shoes and walked on the glass, then there would have been blood. You know, they would have cut themselves with the glass, but there was no evidence of that. However, he added that even if they all did take a pair of shoes, we can't know if they wore them out of the house or if maybe they were holding them, you know, in their hands while walking out. So the question of when the globe actually broke and if the three women were wearing shoes when they left the house is actually still something that investigators are trying to figure out. Another question is, you know, did they find any additional fingerprints at the house that didn't match anyone that was there that day? And if they did, how many different fingerprints were there? When they said that people called in, you know, to give information about the case, another thing is who was the main target in this whole thing? You know, was it Susie and Stacy? You know, were they followed home after leaving Janelle's house? Or was it Cheryl and the girls just walked in on something that they weren't supposed to see? It's just so unclear, but it doesn't seem like all three of them could have been the target since Stacy didn't even live there. And, you know, Susie's plan wasn't to be there that night either. 
remember they were going to go sleep at Janelle's house. So if this was a planned thing, they wouldn't have known that the girls were going to be there that night. Another thing is, you know, what is Robert's role in all of this? What information does he have? And how is he so sure that the three women are dead? Police are not sure whether he's just being serious or if he's just kind of, you know, being an attention seeker. He apparently has no additional facts, so they don't think that he actually did it. But at the same time, he's so adamant that the girls are dead. So it just makes a lot of people wonder, you know, what does he actually know? Another thing is, you know, what was said on the third call that Janice answered? Like, why do police believe that it's so pertinent to the case? You know, is it common for kidnappers to call the house back? It's just really weird that no one has ever said what was actually said on that voicemail. You know, all they say is that it was sexual innuendos and it was just inappropriate things, but they don't go into specifics about, you know, what was said word for word. Also, if this phone call was just kind of a prank, why has no one come forward yet to say that it was them and just kind of like apologize for doing it? And if it was someone that knew the girls, how come Janelle didn't recognize the voice? If it was a friend from high school or a friend from the area? It's just really hard. Like, I feel like for me, the phone call is the most confusing thing because it honestly seems like someone was maybe watching the house. You know, as soon as they saw that Janelle and everyone else was in there, they decided to call. So it just seems really odd. Like if it wasn't something, you know, in connection to the disappearance, who was it and why did they do this? Also, why was Susie's car parked in a different spot than where she would normally park? You know, there are just so many other questions like this. And unfortunately, it's been 30 years since Cheryl, Stacy, and Suzanne were last seen. The images of Cheryl, Stacy, and Susie still hang in a few storefronts in Springfield to this day. There's actually this one store owner named Bill, and he has like a barbershop in the area, and he still has a poster of the three women placed outside of his store. He says that he first taped it up in the summer of 1992 and that he made a vow to himself and said that he wasn't going to take it down until they solved the case. Well, now it's been over. Over 30 years and he says that he was hoping that it would have been solved by now but that now he honestly thinks that the flyer is just probably gonna rot off the wall to this day police are still looking for answers they've logged every tip they've given polygraph tests to potential suspects friends and family members they even searched the woods and fields throughout the ozarks and they followed up with every lead that they could find but there's just nothing to indicate you know what actually happened to the three women there was a podcast launched recently called the springfield three a small town disappearance this was launched by a New York journalist named Anne, and it's about eight episodes long, and she does a deep dive into the investigation and just tries to figure out, you know, what happened. People in Springfield still wonder where the missing women could be. There's a lot of speculation and a lot of theories in this investigation. Normally, I don't like to go into theories just because sometimes it can be a little bit too crazy, but in this one, there's just some that I feel like most likely did happen. Some people believe that the women were either targeted by an ex-boyfriend or by someone from Cheryl's past. Others truly think that they were buried underneath the Cox South Hospital parking garage. Like a lot of people truly believe that that's what happened. But I get why, you know, they don't want to tear down the parking garage because it's a lot of work and they don't want to destroy everything and then find out that the bodies aren't there. But I still feel like maybe more could be done to just confirm that their bodies are not underneath the parking garage. Like how reliable was this tool that was used that said that the bodies were there? You know, there needs to be something else to confirm this. Going back to the theory, some police officers feel like the man or the person that did this could have used a simple ruse. He could have gone up to the door in the morning and said that he was a utility worker that was working in the area, you know, trying to fix a gas leak. He could have said that he was an electrician. He could have said that he was a delivery man. I mean, there's a million things that this man could have said and he could have approached the house in a nice and, you know, 
not dangerous way and that's how he could have gotten inside or you know they also could have gotten inside through stacy's sliding window door in her bedroom since those are super easy to unlock you know there just could have been so many ways that this could have happened deborah says that their father and their mother have passed away so they died without ever finding out what happened to their daughter cheryl and what happened to their granddaughter susie According to an interview that Deborah did in 2022, she truly believes that Robert Cox, the man that I mentioned earlier that killed a woman and kidnapped two others and was in Springfield, Missouri at the time of the disappearance, well, she believes that he did it. He just doesn't really deny it. He kind of says, oh yeah, I know they're dead. He doesn't explain why he knows they're dead or why he says that. So the fact that he doesn't deny actually killing the woman just makes Deborah feel like he did it. You know, he's the one that did this. So Stacy's parents ended up creating an organization called One Missing Link, which is a nonprofit organization to help families with loved ones who are missing. There is currently a $43,000 reward for the three women's location and for the prosecution of the people responsible for their abduction. Anyone with information to the disappearance of Suzanne, Stacy, and Cheryl can contact the Springfield Police Department at 417-864-1751. Or you can also contact Crime Stop. Cheryl is 5 foot, 110 pounds, has brown eyes, short bleached blonde hair, curly hair, and a thin build with freckles on her neck and upper chest area. Stacy McCall is a white female, 5 foot 3, 120 pounds, has blue eyes, dark blonde hair to the middle of her back with sun lightened ends. She has freckles on her face and a dimple in the middle of her chin. Now Susie is a white female, she's 5'2, 102 pounds, has brown eyes, straight bleached blonde hair and she has the three and a half inch scar on the top right of her forearm and the small scar on the left corner of her mouth which i mentioned earlier cheryl would now be in her late 70s today and susie would be in her early 50s and stacy would be in her late 40s which is crazy because susie would be i believe 49 50 years old and that's pretty much the same age that her mother was when she went missing it's crazy to believe that so many years have passed without any answers thankfully to this day they are still taking on new leads so hopefully one day you know the families get answers as to what happened to these three women but all right you guys that is pretty much everything i have on this case thank you guys so much for being here and for taking the time to listen to what happened to cheryl stacy and Susie. if there is ever any updates with the investigation i will make sure to let you guys know by putting a comment on my youtube channel or updating you guys with a part two don't forget to follow rate, and review what happened wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to my youtube channel true crime jackie for full video episodes you can also find me on instagram at the Jackie Flores and on TikTok at True Crime Jackie. Thank you guys again so much for being here and I will see you all in the next video. Bye guys.